John 11, 19 through 27, 32 through 44. Many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her brother, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on the account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. The word of the Lord.
Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to see you, um, especially after uh, missing everyone last week. Um, I also want to mention, just in regard to last week, uh, I feel like that was kind of a late call that I made to uh, cancel services. Probably most of you here were like, yeah, I'm not going out in that. Um, but I just wanted to apologize if you did happen to come by and didn't get the message. We tried to put it on Facebook and the website and get an email out, but it did go out rather late in the morning, so I want to apologize um, if you came over here um, and didn't get the message. Um, we'll try to do better about that in the future in terms of communication. But this week, this passage we just read, um, this amazing um, story, what's this all about? You know, we're in a series uh, in which we're looking at a number of statements that Jesus made in the Gospel of John. They're called the I Am statements. Jesus said things like, I am the bread of life, or I am the light of the world. He, uh, Jesus points to the basic needs and the core longings of every human being, and he says, I'm the one who meets that need, and I'm the one who fulfills that longing. So when Jesus in this passage says, I am the resurrection and the life, what's he saying in this passage? The story is about two sisters, Martha and Mary, and their brother Lazarus has just died, and they're devastated, and that's where this story begins. Jesus steps into the devastation of their lives, and he brings his answer to death. This story is all about Jesus' answer to death. You know, we all have pretty much the same problems and challenges and difficulties in life, but because we're individuals, it means that we experience those things in different ways. But there's one problem that's pretty much the same for all of us, and it's the problem of death. But it's not just physical death. You know, there was a great book written a number of years ago by a French philosopher named Luc Ferry. It's called A Brief History of Thought. And in that book, in the introduction, he says that the main problem that philosophy has to deal with is the problem of death. But it's not just physical death. Look at how, or listen to how he describes this. He says, death is not as simple an event as it is ordinarily credited with being. On the contrary, death has many different faces. Edgar Allan Poe, in one of his most famous poems, The Raven, conveys this idea of life's irreversibility in a sinister raven perched on a window ledge capable only of repeating nevermore over and over again. Poe is suggesting that death means everything that is unrepeatable. Death is, in the midst of life, that which will not return, that which belongs irreversibly to time past, which we have no hope of ever recovering. It can mean childhood holidays with friends, the divorce of parents, or the houses or schools we have to leave, or a thousand other examples, even if it does not always mean the disappearance of a loved one. Everything that comes under the heading of nevermore belongs in death's ledger. See, life is death because life is filled with things that end, that will never come back, never more. Life is filled with things that will, that will never come back. You can never retrieve them, never recover them. And the, the scariest and saddest thing about death is that it's this reality that all of the things we love the most, all of the things that carry the most meaning for us, that they would just be gone forever, and you can never get them back. It's, it's death. Now, we just said at, uh, a few minutes ago that these I am statements of Jesus, he's addressing the deepest longings of our hearts and saying, I'm the one who fulfills this longing. So what longing is Jesus addressing here? 
We could say it many ways, but, but we could call it the longing for permanence. It's the longing that, that all of the things we love the most, all of the things that carry the most meaning for us, that those, those things would not end, but that they would last, they would endure, that they would um, endure to the end. That's what we want, and that's the longing that Jesus is addressing in this passage when he says, I am the resurrection and the life. What does he mean by that? We're going to see three things this morning in this passage. We're going to see there's a promise for our future, there's a person in our pain, and there's a power that makes both of them possible, okay? There's a promise for our future, a person in our pain, and a power that makes them both possible. So first, there's a promise for our future. Now, if we want to understand what Jesus is really doing in this passage, uh, then we have to understand um, what's going on in his conversation with Martha, uh, the first sister. She says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus said, your brother will rise again. And Martha says, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Now, when she talks about the resurrection on the last day, do you know what she's talking about? Most of us don't. Not really. And there's a number of reasons for that. One of them is just the fact that um, our modern conceptions of the afterlife are pretty much the same as, as the ancient world's ideas about this. The ancient world said there's a physical world and there's a spiritual world. And the ultimate goal is to escape the physical world and to find salvation or liberation into this disembodied spiritual existence in union with God. Now, we talk about this um, fairly frequently here. Um, and the reason I talk about it so much is because um, it's kind of like, uh, you know, the grown-ups in the old Charlie Brown TV shows? Whenever they talk, it's just wah, 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 wah. It doesn't really register. It's because we're so ingrained with this idea that the ultimate goal is to escape this physical world, escape our physical bodies, and to find salvation in some disembodied spiritual existence, maybe this blissful union with God, but it's a disembodied reality. That is not the story of the Bible. That, you know, Martha, she's an Orthodox Jewish woman, and she knows her Bible. So when she talks about the resurrection on the last day, she's talking about something very specific. It means something very specific in that day and age. It's kind of like, um, you know, if somebody 2,000 years from now were to open up one of our newspapers uh, here in America and, and, and read a story and somebody's talking and they mention something about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, they, they might know what those words mean, but unless they have a really good knowledge of what the Declaration of Independence is and what that phrase actually means in the psyche and the experience of American people living in this country, they wouldn't really know what that phrase means. Not really. It's the same thing when Martha says the resurrection on the last day. She's referring to something very specific that had a lot of meaning for Jewish people back then. What she's doing is she's tapping into the main storyline of the Bible. What is that story? In the beginning, the story says that God created the heavens and the earth. He created the physical world. And not only that, it says that he called the world good. In fact, he says it's very good. God created the physical world. He actually likes it. It was his idea. He cares about it. But when human rebellion came into the world, human rebellion against God, that's what the Bible calls sin. When, when that happened, death entered the world. Now, what is death, if you really think about it? 
Death is, it's physical disintegration. Death is when things fall apart. So when sin and death entered into the world, it's kind of like if you were to walk up to a beautiful tapestry and every stitch, every thread is fastidiously placed. The colors are just right. It's beautiful. It's perfect. Everything is exactly the way it's supposed to be. When sin and death entered into this world, it's as if you were to walk around back of that tapestry, grab hold of one of those threads and just start pulling until the whole thing falls apart. It ruins the tapestry. When we look at this world with all of the war and the hatred and the violence and the division and the poverty and the sickness and especially all of the death, how do we feel about that? I mean, why do we spend so much time and energy trying to, quote, make the world a better place? It's because when we look at this world, we know, we know it's not the way it's supposed to be. Death is not the way it's supposed to be. And you know, there's this whole movement in psychology and psychiatry over the last several decades that's tried to say, look, death is natural. It's a very peaceful event. It's just like falling asleep. There's really nothing to be upset about. Death is natural. We know that is not the way we feel about death. When psychologists and psychiatrists try to convince us that that's the way we should feel about death, they've got a job on, our hand, on their hands because that's not the way we feel about death. Death is not natural. It's a monster. In fact, it feels so unnatural, so hideous, so alien to us. That's the way we feel about it. And you can tell that's the way we feel about it when you look at, by the way, why uh, or how we use things like science and medicine and technology. A lot of the ways we use those things is to um, prolong our youth, to stave off the eventual onslaught of death and age and decay. We, we look at death and we look at it as a monster, Friends, if that's the way we feel about death, how much more God? If you were the one who had created the tapestry, how would you feel if something was ruining it? Would you just chuck it? Would you just throw it away? Of course you wouldn't. You would do everything in your power to restore that tapestry. That's what God's doing. That's the story of the Bible. And that's what Martha is talking about when she talks about this resurrection on the last day. That's what she's referring to. It's the story of the Bible. It's the story of God's fierce, relentless, unstoppable commitment not to destroy the world, but to destroy death and to renew the world. So that when Martha talks about the resurrection on the last day, that's what she's talking about. It's a promise for our future. And that, by the way, explains why Jesus is so angry in this passage. Now, someone might say, what do you mean Jesus is angry? Where do we see Jesus angry here? Well, if you look at verse 33, when Jesus sees everyone weeping, it says that he was deeply moved in his spirit. Now, in the original language, that phrase is all one word that basically means to be bellowing with rage. It's a word that was used of animals snorting with anger or, or used of horses, um, the, the snorting of horses charging into battle. That's what the word meant. I mean, have you ever been so angry that you literally just shake? That's Jesus here. And it's not just when he sees everyone weeping. Um, in verse 38, when Jesus walks up to the tomb of Lazarus, it uses the same word again. Now, here's the question. Why is Jesus so angry? He's not angry at the sisters. He's not angry at himself. He's angry at death. 
Jesus is angry at the tomb, so angry that he's literally quaking with rage. The picture is, is of a fierce warrior walking up to do battle with a hated enemy. That's how Jesus feels about death. It's an enemy, and he's come to destroy it. Friends, the God of the universe looks at death, and he says, it's not natural. It's a monster. In fact, it's an intruder in my creation, in my garden, and I will not have it. The story of the Bible is the story of God's commitment not to destroy this world, but to destroy death and to renew this world, to make it the place of blessing and wholeness and flourishing that he created it to be. And that's the first thing we see here. There's a promise for a future. But secondly, there's a person in our pain. And this actually, for me, actually might be one of the most amazing parts of the story. You know, when Jesus comes to raise Lazarus from the dead, um, most of the story is focused on his interaction with these two sisters, Martha and Mary. Most of the story is focused on what Jesus does before he raises Lazarus from the dead. Now, what's going on with that? Well, look at Mary, the second sister here. She says the same thing as Martha. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And instead of getting into a conversation with her, Jesus just breaks down weeping. Now, here's what's so odd about that. Think about it. Um, Jesus knows exactly what he's about to do. Jesus knows that in just a few minutes, he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He knows that in just a few minutes, everybody's going to be jumping for joy. They're going to be high-fiving each other and saying, wow, did you see that? Jesus knows exactly what's about to happen. So why doesn't he look at all these people and say, hey, come on, guys, cut out all that blubbering and weeping. Enough of that. Put away your sadness and your sorrow. He does not do that. Jesus enters right into their grief. He starts weeping with them. Now, why would he do that? The answer is because Jesus is God, and therefore his love is perfect. This whole series that, that we're in, we're looking at these series of statements called the I Am Statements. When Jesus says, I am the bread of life, or I am the light of the world, I am is the divine name of God from Exodus chapter 3. Jesus takes that divine name upon himself and says, I am the God of the universe. Jesus is God, and therefore he's showing us what God's love looks like. God's love, real love, is not, um, you know, it's not some abstract um, serene, dispassionate, dopey, drowsy, general benevolent wish for everybody's well-being. God's love is furious. Not only is he angry at death, God experiences the grief and the, the sorrow and the pain at, at death and all the loss that death brings. He will not shut his heart off to that. He enters right in. Do you realize what this means? This is, this is not a faraway God. You know, this is not an abstract God. This is not a God whom you have to work really, really hard in order to escape this world of pain and death, in order to find your way into some spiritual existence with Him. This is a God who does everything necessary in order to enter into this world in order to get to you. And friends, that's the gospel. What do I mean? I was mentioning a few weeks ago, uh, Leslie Newbegin, he was a British missionary in India for 40 years. And Leslie Newbegin tells the story about how when he was in India, he used to spend a lot of time with the Hindu monks there 
Uh, and they would sit around on the floor of the monastery, and they would study Hindu scriptures together, but they also spent a lot of time studying the Gospels, and in particular, the Gospel we're in, the Gospel of John. And he says that at first, these Hindu monks, they loved the Gospel of John. In fact, he says that in that monastery, there was a gallery that had a number of portraits of all the great religious teachers in the history of the world, including Jesus, and that once a year on Christmas Day, they would worship and venerate this picture of Jesus, just like they did all the other gods and religious leaders. And Leslie Newbegin says that eventually he realized that they weren't really worshiping the real Jesus. What was going on was they had simply co-opted Jesus into their already existing worldview. So that when they were studying the Gospel of John, at first they really loved this Gospel. Because in the very beginning it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the word was God. They loved that because it fit into their worldview of, um, that said there's this eternal, unchanging, divine principle that stands outside of and apart from this world of change and pain and decay and death. But when they really began to understand what the Gospel of John is saying, they didn't like it anymore. In fact, they were horrified because the Gospel goes on to say, and that word became flesh. In other words, the divine, unchanging, eternal creator principle that created the whole world actually entered into this world of change, decay, and pain, and death. It overturned their whole view of reality, and they didn't like it. Friends, that's the gospel. And, and that's what Jesus is doing here. He's proclaiming this gospel to us. And by the way, um, it's really interesting to me that, um, you know, this is different from every other religion and every approach to life. If you look at every other religion, essentially every single religion is offering you a way of escaping this world of pain and death. They'll offer you different ways of doing it. Some religions will say, well, you have to obey, you have to be holy and righteous. Other religions will offer you a set of incredibly rigorous spiritual disciplines and say, if you practice these disciplines, then, then you will achieve nirvana or enlightenment or divine consciousness. But, but regardless, every single one of them is basically a way of escaping this world of pain and death. And I think it's really interesting also that there are an increasing number of scientists and tech entrepreneurs who are essentially proposing a secular version of the same thing. So, you know, we can... Um, work really hard to prolong the life of this world. But if there is no God, then eventually this world is going to burn up. Death is going to win, which means that there are a lot of people nowadays. Stephen Hawking used to talk about this before he died. Elon Musk is one of the biggest advocates for this. A lot of people saying, look, the only hope for humanity is for us to escape this world and colonize other planets. You can go online right now and, and, and um, find Elon Musk's plan for colonizing the planet of Mars. I think it's really amazing that both religion and secularism are essentially offering us a way for escaping this world of pain and death. Both of them are deeply cynical about the future of this material world. Only the gospel gives us a hope for this world because only the gospel gives us a God who's intent um, on coming and instead of destroying this world, destroying death and renewing this world. That's what this God is all about, and that's what the gospel is. 
The gospel is good news. The gospel is the announcement, the proclamation in history that the redeeming, renewing power and love of God has burst into this world through the person of Jesus Christ in order to renew this world. And that's the proclamation that Jesus brings into Martha's life. You know, again, Martha said, Lord, I know that my brother's going to rise again in the resurrection on the last day. It's almost like she's repeating her Sunday school lesson. For her, the resurrection on the last day is It's just kind of some abstract event in an unforeseeable future. But Jesus comes into her life and he says, Martha, the resurrection, the renewal of all things is not some abstract event, often some unforeseeable future. It's a power. It's a person. And it's present and standing right in front of you because I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus is saying, I am the power that one day is going to renew the whole cosmos And if you trust in me, then the power that one day is going to renew the whole world can come into your life and begin to renew you right now. It's like, you know, as if there was a spaceship from the future carrying all these seeds for the renewal of the world. It's as if that spaceship came into our time and space and it just plopped one of those seeds right into your heart so that it begins to take root and sprout and grow up into resurrection life in your life right now. And that leads us to our last point. We've seen there's a promise for a future, and we've seen there's a person in our pain. But lastly, we need to see the power that makes both of these things possible. Because what's the climax of this story? Jesus comes and he raises Lazarus from the dead. It's this amazing, wonderful high point of the story. But here's the problem. You know this wasn't a permanent resurrection. You know, Lazarus was going to have to die all over again and go back into the grave. So why did Jesus do it? Well, there was a couple of big reasons. And one of them was this. When he rose Lazarus from the dead, this was a sign pointing to the destruction of death, pointing to the renewal of the world, so that when people saw Lazarus walking down the street, they would have said, hey, there's that guy that came out of the grave. They would have seen a picture of the renewal of all things that one day is going to happen to the whole world, so that the sight of Lazarus, it would have been a constant reminder of the great promise of the Bible that one day God is going to come and not destroy the world, but destroy death and renew the world so that every time Lazarus was walking down the street, he would have been like a living billboard, a preview of coming attractions, the renewal of all things. But, but that's not the only reason Jesus did it. Not only was it to point to this destruction of death, it was to provoke his own. Because at the end of this chapter, it says that when the religious leaders saw what Jesus had done, from that day forward, they made plans to put him to death. This was like the straw that broke the camel's back. When the religious leaders saw this, this was the thing that led ultimately to Jesus' death. In other words, the only way for Jesus to get Lazarus and you and me out of the tomb was to go into the tomb himself. Because when Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead, basically he was signing his own death certificate. You know, there are a lot of wonderful, beautiful places in the Bible that talk about this promise of God one day to renew all things. One of the most beautiful is Isaiah chapter 25. It talks about this great, amazing mountain, and it says, on this mountain, God will swallow up death forever. Isn't that a wonderful image? One day, God will swallow up death forever. You know, that is exactly what Jesus did 
when he went to the cross? How does Jesus destroy death? By swallowing it. Because on the cross, Jesus Christ took the full impact, the full hit, the full force of death, spent itself on Jesus. It poured itself out on Jesus, but in doing so, it extinguished itself. Death took its sword in its hand, and it plunged its sword into the heart of Jesus. But when death plunged its sword into the heart of Jesus, not only did it break the body of Jesus, it broke itself. Because when Jesus drank that cup, he drank the bitter cup of all God's wrath and all the sin and evil and death and decay in this world so that we would never have to taste that cup. So that even though our bodies might die, we can know this wonderful promise that one day our bodies are going to be raised up on the day that Jesus resurrects the whole cosmos, and he will. And if that's true, then what does that mean for our lives, you and me, practically speaking, today, right here in this world of change and decay and death, in a world where things are always ending? There are endless applications of this for our lives, but let me offer you just a couple that are especially noticeable in this passage. And the first is this, let Jesus in your tombs. Let Jesus into your tombs. What do I mean by that? You know, when Jesus walks up to the tomb to raise Lazarus from the dead. Um, He says, take away the stone. And Martha, the first sister, she kind of freaks out. She says, Lord, by this time there will be an odor because he's been dead for four days. Martha doesn't want to open the stone. She doesn't want to open the tomb because it stinks in there. Death stinks. She doesn't want Jesus or anyone else getting in there. And you know what? We're the exact same way as Martha. Because every single one of us has tombs in our lives. What's a tomb? A tomb is a place of loss and death and emptiness. It's a place where where things have been lost and you can never get them back, never more. It's, It's a place where all the things that you've loved the most are gone. It's a place of loss and pain and death. That's a tomb. And friends, our lives are filled with tombs. Some of them are tombs of things that have happened to you, things that have been done to you, and you are not responsible for those things. But they have produced a kind of death in your life, tombs of pain and grief or sorrow or sadness or hopelessness or loneliness or remorse and all kinds of other hurts hurts and wounds. There are all kinds of tombs in our life from the things that have happened to us, the things that have been done to us, but there are also tombs in our life of all the ways that we've responded to the things that have been done to us and all the things that we've done to others. There are tombs in our life of all the the sin and the death in our own lives, tombs of pride, arrogance, tombs of Um, selfishness and self-centeredness and self-absorption, tombs of bitterness and resentment, tombs of deception, betrayal, lust, um, hatred, cruelty, envy, and all kinds of other things. And, And we need to let Jesus into our tombs, whether it's things that have been done to us or the ways we've responded to those and done things to other people. You know, sometimes, just like Mary, we need someone to come and weep with us and grieve with us. But other times, like Martha, we need someone to come into our lives and speak truth into our lives like Jesus did with Martha. But we all have tombs in our lives. And and whatever those tombs are, it stinks because death stinks, sin stinks. And we're just like Martha. We don't want anyone getting in there. 
because we don't want anybody to get in and see what's go- really going on in our lives. There's too much pain, too much hurt, too much shame. The thought of letting anybody inside of those things is absolutely terrifying. But unless we let Jesus in our tombs, we will never find the healing and the renewal that we need. So whether you've been a Christian for decades or whether you're just beginning to explore our faith in Jesus. That means that for all of us, maybe one of the things we need to do is just take some time to sit quietly, pray, and maybe just begin to name those tombs, to identify them. Some of you have never done that, and you need to. Roll away the stone. Maybe another step, a next step, might be to find a mature, wise Christian, someone you can trust, and just begin to to share those things with that person, and then together with that person to pray and to invite Jesus into those tombs to bring healing to those places. That's the first thing we need to do is is let Jesus in our tombs. But the second thing we need to do is this. Let Jesus make you a living billboard. You know, my my personal favorite part of the story is at the very end, when Lazarus comes out, Jesus says, unbind him and let him go. You know, in those days when they buried somebody, they wrapped them pretty tightly in um, linens so that when Lazarus came out, he would have at best been able to shuffle out because he was wrapped so tightly with the grave clothes or maybe even just hopped or shuffled out like that because it was so tight. He would have been bound up in those grave clothes, but Jesus says, unbind him and let him go so that he would be set free and able to walk forth at leisure, so that he would be freed from all the stink and the stench of death that was clinging to him. Unbind him and let him go. So that, as I just mentioned, when when Lazarus walked down the street, he would have been a preview of coming attractions, a living billboard for the renewal of all things. Friends, that's Jesus' vision for you too, so that as you begin to let him into your tombs, as you begin to experience healing and renewal in your lives, one of the things that happens next is you begin to get unbound from all the grave clothes, all the things that are hindering and hampering hampering you from living with freedom and being a living billboard for the renewal of all things, the gospel of Jesus. So that as you begin to, to let him into your tombs, you begin to get free. Jesus begins to unbind you so that those things, those tombs, they no longer define you. And you're now able to move out into the world and become that living billboard. You do that through the things you say, through the things you do. You do that um, through the ways that you use things like sex, money, power, relationships, resources. You know, it's hard to be a Christian in this world, and for a couple of reasons at least. First, it's hard just to see all the cultural idols that we have that are so ingrained in our lives. There's an old saying, if you want to know about water, don't ask a fish. That we, it's really hard for us to see that the cultural waters we're swimming in are filled with all kinds of things that are utterly at odds with the gospel of Jesus. And so one of the things that's really hard if you're a Christian is just to learn how to identify those things. But, but secondly, it's really hard to live in tension with those things. Once you begin to see them, once you begin to identify them, it's really hard, if you're a Christian, to begin swimming against the current. We don't want to do that. It is way easier to just let the current carry us along, just go back into this sweet um, ignorance of, of the ways that, that we're being carried along by the currents of our culture. It's really hard to swim against the currents of all our cultural idols, things like individualism, consumerism, materialism, 
political ideologies, autonomy, like sexual autonomy, identity autonomy, self-determination, and all kinds of other things. But friends, growing as a Christian means that in community, we learn to identify the idols of our culture, and that in community, we then begin to swim against the currents of all of those things so that when the world looks at the church, when the world looks at you, it would see a living billboard, a preview of coming attractions for the renewal of all things, a picture of the beauty and the wholeness and the goodness that God created this world to be and one day will make it to be. But the only way we're going to do that is if we cling to the gospel. Friends, remember what the gospel is, that the life you live when you become a Christian, that as we strive by the power of the Holy Spirit to live lives of beauty and holiness and righteousness, that those are not just silly words that mean nothing, that those are real pictures of the life God has for us, that as we attempt to live that life, we have to remember that we do not live that life in order to get God's forgiveness or love or acceptance in our lives. We live that way because we've already received those things by grace through Jesus not the God who, whom we have to work really hard to get up to Him, but the God who's done everything necessary to come down to us. And that as we live that life, what we do is we, we can walk forward in humility because we know we've all still got lots of tombs in our lives. But we also learn to walk in boldness because we follow a Redeemer, a champion, who faced death on our behalf and swallowed death for us so that we would never have to experience true death, real death, not the death Jesus faced on the cross. So because we have a redeemer, a champion who now leads us forth out into the world, has unbound us and made us living billboards for the resurrection of all things. Have you experienced that redemption? Are you following this redeemer? It's the end of everything that ends. Is he leading you forth today? Follow him forth. Let him into your tombs. Let him make you a living billboard. Let him unbind you so that you can walk forth in the humility and the boldness and the beauty that he's called you to be and this whole universe to be one day. Let's pray.